afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Coming up on the program today, we are going to check in with Claire Newell as we do on Wednesday afternoons. And a bit later on in the show, we're going to talk more about the price of what is happening in Stanley Park. We touched on this yesterday when we talked about the park board's decision to go back to what the park looked like before the COVID changes were made to those bike lanes in the park drive area of Stanley Park. Well, we're going to break down the price tag for the bike lane removal and find out exactly what it is going to cost. First, though, we are talking about Vancouver City Council once again deciding the fate of the single-use cup fee. It is being debated at council right now, and we are checking in with Stanley Woodvine, who is a former graphic designer and Stanley Woodvine now homeless and does talk about this quite a bit. So we thought it would be great to check in with Stanley and he's on the line with us now. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me on the program. Well, I know that you've been commenting about this on social media and have been talking a lot about this particular cup fee. Can you just remind us again, I know that you are not a fan of the fee, like many, many people. Uh, Your thoughts on the fact that this fee is still in place, at least right now? Well, I think it punishes the wrong target. Um, Traditionally, BC has had a a tendency of trying to make polluters directly pay. This is why we have a bottle deposit scheme and why people can return paint to bottle depots. But the cup fee does the exact opposite. It it directly punishes consumers, and it arguably actually rewards the polluters. Uh, Restaurants have little incentive not to have single-use cups if they're going to get a quarter for every single cup. I just left a McDonald's, and every single person in that restaurant had a single-use cup. There's nothing in the restaurant to encourage them to use uh, a returnable cup. It's not like when you go into a supermarket and they say, okay, well, you need to bring your own bag, and look, there's bags right there that you can get for a dollar. None of these restaurants had displays of reusable cups. It's not easy for the consumer. This is basically entirely dumping the entire onus on the unsuspecting consumer. And there's been no education for a year. There's been nothing paralleling the, the implementation of the fee. It's just been dumped on the consumer and said, if we make it expensive for them, then they'll go out and get themselves a travel mug. But it's getting it's, people aren't necessarily doing that. They're just absorbing the quarter because, in fact, they forget about it. Nobody's reminding them, and uh, it's not effective. It's not actually having the result because it's not stopping the use of, of the cups. Right. And, and that's a good point you make, because I think a part of this, too, restaurants are supposed to have something in the restaurant or the, the cafe that says that fee is in place. But I know not certainly not all of them are doing that. Um, I, I was looking at your social media and you shared about the one dollar coffee at McDonald's, which is great. I know a lot of people really enjoy that. But you had a, a, a bit of a, a strange incident where were you using a, a reusable cup, but you still got charged the fee yes and this is something that that uh that i i always look at the receipt because people like i get this in coffee shops i get this in mcdonald's where they just accidentally charge the fee in the case of a, a fast food restaurant like mcdonald's 
their their like kill system is kind of like a national system. It's not really that easy for them to go in and do a regional distinction, like putting in a cup fee. So uh, they were training, and they had a new person, and they had to punch in the cup fee. So this new person who's being trained, they're new on the job, they didn't put it in. So I looked at the receipt, and I saw, okay, this is, you charged me the quarter. And in fact, this is now then costing me 35 cents because McDonald's began discounting another 10 cents if you bring in your own travel mug. So it took them several minutes to credit me the quarter and looking on their seat, I could see that they had to Mickey Mouse the system by charging for a dipping sauce to sort of get it through the system. And this is this is the time they it's not doing anybody any good. And it's not the bottom line is it's not getting the single use cups out of use. If you look in any garbage you're going to see single-use cups. You're still seeing single-use cups sitting on the street, on the sidewalks. Maybe I hope that it's had some reduction, but the key things that the city suggested that it would do, that it would, uh, that it would encourage businesses, restaurants to, to move to reusable cup systems, that simply hasn't happened. And the, the thing about buying a dishwasher with the proceeds, that was, I mean, not only was that not going to happen, but the health rules already require restaurants to have dishwashers. Like, you're not going to find a large restaurant, a McDonald's or a, a coffee shop, that does not have a high-speed sanitizing wear washer. Right. See, so... so had the city walked over to its own health department and asked, they would have been told this. No, they don't. They don't need to buy a dishwasher. They've got one. So I don't think the city really did the due diligence to actually figure out how to make this workable. They, I don't know why they did it this way. I think originally they, from what I understand, is they thought they would be keeping the revenue from the cut fee and then using it to do something, but they were not, they didn't end up doing that. I believe lawyers said that they couldn't. Right. But in which case they should have scrapped it right then and there. And and even looking at your experience at McDonald's, I mean, it, it's pretty nuts to look at that and think when they're, it's a $1 coffee. I mean, 30 you're you're losing out on 35% like you said because they charged you the fee uh, in in error because you had a reusable cup and didn't give you the 10 cents. I mean, that is a big chunk of of what you should be getting or what you should be paying. A, a big chunk on top of that for for just going there and trying to get the $1 coffee. Especially big for seniors who are living on fixed incomes who who look at places like McDonald's and a place where they can afford to go and spend a bit of time in the afternoon and chat and 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 have an inexpensive coffee. But you're right; that's an incredible uh, fee on top of a simple little cup of coffee. So, and in fact, that was a medium. If it was a small coffee, well, yeah, normally, like you say, it's a dollar. But in the rest of the time, when it's not a dollar coffee, 
then the people who are getting a small coffee are getting incredibly dinged. And I think the reason I was pointing out every time I get the cups in air is to just remind people that even if they get a travel mug, there's no assurance that they're not paying the cup fee. Right. You still have to check uh, your receipt. When I, at the beginning, when the cup fee was beginning to be charged, it turned out that Wendy's was charging the cup fee on the frosty desserts, even though the bylaw specifically said that it, that it doesn't apply to desserts. Hmm. But they vended in a little paper cup, so they were charging the cup fee. And I mentioned that the city, I don't think the city necessarily went to them or had the intention of going to them to tell them to not do it, but it's, it's kind of, it's just, it's just weirdly implemented, and I just don't understand what their, what their goal is. What I would say, just very quickly, is that I strongly believe that this should not be a city initiative, that this needs to be a provincial initiative. Right. And that, that Vancouver should advocate with other communities. We already have an entire structure for, for dealing with this kind of thing. And it's basically the extended producer responsibility system that we've implemented over and over and over. It's how we have a bottle deposit system. It's how you can return batteries, packaging and paper, painted electronics, pharmaceuticals, tires, used oil and antifreeze. Uh, anytime somebody brings their lights, their, their light bulbs and the fluorescent tubes to a return it recycling center, they're doing that because the provincial government went to the polluters, the people who are producing these products, and said, you need to create a group and create a plan to not only reduce, but recycle this waste. And we started doing this in 1970 with, I believe, Encore Pacific, which is, which is Return It. Uh, that was the first. And then we just added group after group. And the, pro- the system has problems, but it's given us an astonishing recycling rate compared to other provinces. Uh, Stanley, I'm curious if you think it would work then uh, w- with the idea if it was a provincial system as part of Return It, if there was, if the 25 cents or even 10 cents or 15 cents was a deposit fee on a cup, much like a, a soda can or a milk carton, if it was something that could be returned then for the, the deposit refund, do you think that would work? Well, we all know what would happen to paper cups. They would vanish instantly. So every year, um, the Binnis Project uh, does a, a, a paper cup collection where they, they, they get fees donated so that they can pay Binners. And I think they're paying 10 or 20 cents per paper cup, but they have an enormous uh, rate of cups returned. And so if you put a, an actual deposit where, where people could collect the cups and bring them in for deposit, we know that every every paper cup in Vancouver would would disappear out of the out of the garbages off the sidewalks, but that's just one of the options. Like when when you when you create a product stewardship group, they're the ones who decide. Well, okay, do we want to do that kind of deposit scheme like like is done with pop cans, or we do we want to have some other way of doing it? 
but certainly, uh, if you if you harness the power of dinners, then you would never see another paper cup. And in fact, if the paper cups go into the recycling system, they they are recycled. This is a people talk about the fact that hot cups, coffee cups are plastic lined, and and cold cups are plastic lined, and they are. It's a super thin plastic film, but it. It can be recycled. The plastic can be separated from the paper. Uh, Recycle BC has insisted to me over the years that, that, in fact, they are recycled. They're sent to, I believe, South Korea. Uh, but we could do that here. So some people do have argued that these cups cannot be recycled. The whole problem is they have to make it into the recycling system, and that's that's what we've had trouble doing all these years. And so that's... I think what we need to address, we need to create an actual system to get them out of people's hands into the right kind of waste receptacle. All right. Well, right. Uh, sorry, uh, Stanley, thank you so much. We're, we're just uh, we're running out of time, but I do appreciate so much uh, you joining us uh, to talk uh, about this. I mean, it, it seems to make a lot of sense if we go down that route, but we'll wait to, and see what council votes on today. But thank you again so much for being with us. Well, thanks for having me, Joe. It is Wednesday. That means it's time to check in with Claire Newell. Good afternoon to you. Hi there, Jill. Uh, lots going on in the world of BC flights. I can't wait to share that with you, but um, it was Valentine's Day yesterday, so I thought we would chat about some of the most romantic cities in <laughs> Europe off the top. I won't keep this long because there's so much so much else to chat with, but I thought it was pretty interesting. I thought it was interesting that Paris didn't come in at the top or even number second or second place. I know. I know. I totally agree with you. Uh, for those who were interested to find out which was the continental hotspot, it was actually Lisbon, Portugal. And this was um, based on data that was analyzed to show how many romantic hotels and restaurants per capita could be found in a whole list of European capital cities. So Lisbon had 1,077 romantic restaurants and 278 romantic hotels per million residents. So that's why they came out on top. Um, it was interesting because the capital of the tiny, exclusive little principality of Monaco comes in second. Um, they had 1,472 romantic restaurants per million residents and 164 hotels per million. So, um, And then it was Paris that, that uh, ranked up there. So if if romance is in your list, I know lots of people who look to these types of lists if they want to, you know, pop the question when they're going away or something. So that's kind of fun. All right. Uh, and a few places in Italy, not a huge surprise there. Athens uh, came in. So some some that I think we would expect to make the top 10. Yeah. Oh, for sure. San Marino, Italy and Rome were fourth and fifth. Um, and Athens was eight on that list. So Prague, which I think is a beautiful city, came in ninth. And then Reykjavik, Iceland kind of surprised me at number 10. Hmm, must be all the hot springs. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> all right, that's a fun, fun list. Let's uh, talk as well about numbers and international traffic numbers are getting back up there. Yeah, they're getting there. You know, IATA, which is the International Air Transport Association, this is um, an organization that I really watched their reports. And the latest one says that globally, full year 2022 traffic was at 68.5% of pre-pandemic, which were 2019 levels. So still a long way to go. 
international traffic for 2022 reached 62.2 percent of 2019 levels. It was domestic traffic that kind of um, was more. They were at 79.6 percent for the full year. So, um, it, you know, it was a rough start. We didn't really see things open up until March, April last year. So that's why. And I, I suspect things will get a lot better this coming year. All right. Yeah, those numbers certainly uh, getting back up there. Now, you mentioned flights and we've got some new flights, uh, WestJet, uh, a bunch of new routes. Yeah. So I wanted to go through this because there's some that um, people who are listening may be really excited about, especially because they're from BC gateways. Um, I think for me, they're the most exciting were some nonstop routes from YVR that have always been a bit difficult to get to Atlanta, Georgia. Nashville. So a lot of people who are loving country music and that whole vibe will be excited about this because you there's not been a nonstop flight to be able to get there. It's always been through um, Denver or Calgary or something. And so it was it was like seven and a half hours at the best to get down there. So um, and then the last one is Orlando. So that's great for those families who want to knock off Disney World as part of their bucket list. So All of these are starting in kind of mid-May. Orlando starts on May 6th, Atlanta, May the 17th, and then Nashville, for those bachelor and bachelorette parties out there who Mm. want to plan, May the 19th, and that's twice a week um, to Nashville. Um, I also wanted to talk about some regional flights that I think are great. Those people who live in Terrace, they're going to get a nonstop to Calgary starting May 1st. Nanaimo is going to get a flight to Edmonton April 30th. People living in Penticton will get Edmonton starting July 1st. Those in Kelowna get a, a, a three different options. There'll be a flight to Regina from Kelowna starting May the 21st, Saskatoon starting June 2nd, and Winnipeg starting June 2nd. Um, Vancouver to Regina will start June 30th. And Victoria to Winnipeg will start April 30th. So WestJet is really, you know, sticking in line with what they had said, that they're going to be a big player here in Western Canada. So this is great news um, for anyone living in B.C. Lots more connectivity, not just to the U.S., but within Canada. Um, and then, of course, they can connect east and west across the country. So it's, it's, it's really good news. And I'm sure that there will be more. Uh, but this is a lot of service, a lot of new stuff. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, a lot of people will be uh, enjoying that for sure. Uh, let's talk about biometrics and more yeah. airports bringing in this technology. Yeah, so, you know, that was one of the things that we started to see during COVID was a lot of technology trying to go to touchless. And we saw it at um, kiosks and different things, but Frankfurt Airport did a, a study first with Lufthansa um, because uh, Frankfurt is their hub. And so they've put in this biometric now, this system all over the airport, and it's going to roll out through all of their terminals by spring of this year. And people can basically go right through every stage of the airport journey by scanning their face, and that's it. Hmm. So really cool technology coming to Frankfurt. I, I, I'm i not surprised by this. Uh, Europe is kind of starts the ball rolling and Frankfurt is a major hub. But I expect that over the next few years, we'll start to see this at major airports, like the biggies, um, kind of rolling out. So it's interesting to see 
that this is actually happening. I never thought that it would happen as quickly, but I'm a big fan of tech using technology. No touch, not ripping out your passport. It's fantastic. Do you think people will, will be that um, open to it, though, when you still see even the body scanners at the airport? There are still people that, that choose the option of not going into the body scanner. They want to, the old-fashioned scan going through. Do you think people will be hesitant in some cases of going this touchless biometrics route? Well, I'm guessing people like you and me who are, uh, you know, kind of road warriors and love to travel and certainly people who travel for business will absolutely adopt this as soon as possible. Um, but biometric technology is coming and it's going to be collected along the way. I mean, we're seeing just, for example, even the UK start to collect this type of information, contact information, biometric data, and most of the time it's fingerprints. But even when you go and you land certain places, uh, I had to do this when I was landing in Argentina in November, you're scanning your your fingerprints before you're let through. Mm-hmm. And it, this is this is going to become the norm. Um, and it's, I just think we have to adopt it. I guess there there might be ways that you can bypass this and kind of go old school, but there will be a heck of a lot longer lineups for that, I'm sure, in the, in the future. All right. And we're also taking a look. Uh, if anybody's been on JetBlue, there was supposed to be a merger going through, but this might not happen. Yeah. So we don't have a lot of service out of YVR by JetBlue. The first one is New York. Uh, that started last summer and we're getting Boston starting this coming summer. So we'll have two flights. But for those people who like like that service and kind of connect to other destinations, um, there was going to be a merger well, that was proposed between JetBlue and Spirit, and it would have made that airline massive. And it's now actually been blocked, um, just antitrust laws that are coming into play due to a concern over loss of com- competition in air service. And I get that. Um, what they're worried about is that it will result in higher fares and reduced service. And there's no question that that would actually happen. So we'll have to see whether that actually um, is blocked forever or whether they're just going to look at it and then decide what's going to happen. All right. And uh, let's take a look at, I, I keep forgetting that there are places, I guess I shouldn't, but I keep forgetting there are places that still have strict uh, COVID protocols and such in place. Uh, but Singapore, one of those places that is moving to reopening. Yeah. So let's just remind people though, because spring break is coming. I don't want people to get caught and actually university reading week happening this coming weekend. So a lot of people will be traveling if they have uh, kids that are a little bit older and in university or um, colleges across the country. U.S. still requires a vaccine if you're flying. So just remember that. But Singapore, you're right. As of February the 13th, they're moving to their next stage of reopening after maintaining a quite a stable COVID situation over the the recent months. So travelers and the public can say goodbye to mandatory mask and contact tracing apps, which have been you know used up until this point. They're going to drop a requirement for travelers who are not fully vaccinated to show COVID test results or purchase coronavirus test uh, travel insurance. And that all took effect February the 13th. So anyone going won't have to wear masks or on public transport or anything anymore. All right. And one more, maybe before we get to, to the deals, um, Air France is increasing capacity. If anyone's flown on Air France. Lots of people actually have, and they had a big promotion. I'm not sure if you saw it, but to Europe, um, flights out of YBR, they were quite reduced. Um, the, that sale still may be on. I haven't looked uh, in the last couple of days, but 
they've been around in Canada since 1950, and they are increasing capacity. So for summer of 2023, they're going to operate up to 50 weekly flights to five destinations in Canada. Ottawa, that's a new service uh, that started this year. And then Quebec City, that was new last year. But Montreal, Toronto, and Vancouver are the other three that they'll be increasing capacity to. And those destinations are served year-round by Air France. So um, big commitment by Air France to Canada. In fact, um, Canada is one of the largest destinations that Air France flies to. Hmm, All right. There we go. Let's get people traveling. What deals do you have today? The first one is to Anaheim, California. We talked about that flight coming from uh, WestJet Vancouver to Orlando. This is not there. It's to Anaheim, California, but the other Disney, Disneyland. Um, April the 18th until the end of September, I found a package that includes airfare and four nights hotel, adults from $4.99, taxes of $2.84, and then kids 17 and under are $2.29, taxes of $2.08. So, if you want to do it when kids are out of school, it might be just a little bit more money than that. Uh, but during that window, there are dates that, uh, that that rate applies to. The next one I've got to is Huatulco, Mexico. We haven't talked about this destination for a wee while, um, but it is still hugely popular. And I haven't seen a lot of space this year. So I found some April the 13th or 20th that includes airfare and seven nights in a four-star beachfront all-inclusive resort. It's a beautiful property. $12.99, taxes of $384. And then my favorite deal of this week, unfortunately, has a book by date of February 17th, which is this Friday, if you want to take advantage of it. Um, it's a five-day sale that Celebrity has put on, starts Monday to Friday. So we're kind of mid middle of this, Jill. All right. But this deal is leaving uh, September the 23rd. It's a cruise that does Greece, Malta, and Spain. It's a nine-night cruise that includes the beverage package, Wi-Fi, prepaid gratuities, and this is crazy, up to 950 U.S. dollar onboard credit. And the whole thing is 1489 Canadian taxes of 180. I totally did a double take on that. <laughs> Right? Yeah, it doesn't seem right, does it? It doesn't seem right because 950 US is pretty much that amount. But anyway, yeah, it's just a five day sale. All right. All of that on the website, travelbestbets.com. Claire, thank you so much. We'll chat with you again soon. Thanks, Jill. Bye. We are following up on something we were talking about on the show earlier this week, and that is the removal of the temporary bike lane in Stanley Park, the one that was put in as a reaction to the pandemic, giving people a bit more space to enjoy the park and to get around the park. As we know, the Vancouver Park Board has now voted to remove that structure or those cones and that bike lane back to what it looked like before, generally speaking, and then work on a more permanent solution down the road. So today we wanted to talk a little bit more about the price tag because there were three different options. And as option C is the one they voted for, it is the least expensive of the three, but it's still coming in just shy of $334,000. So joining us to talk more about this is Aaron Jasper, who is a former Park Board Commissioner. Thank you so much, Aaron, for joining us and talking about this today. 
No, it's always a pleasure. Thanks, Joe. Well, the price tag, when we asked, when we talked to the commissioner whose motion this was yesterday, her response was, well, it takes a lot of time. Time is money, and that's why these things cost what they do. Uh, But when you look at the cost breakdown and the price tag of this, does it seem like a reasonable amount? Well, that's a good question. I I think everyone was kind of shocked when they when you saw the stories in the news about the price tag between three four hundred thousand, um, you know, to be honest, I I I I'm inclined to give the the staff the benefit of the doubt on their budget project projections. You know, uh, everything has gone up in price over the last few years, and I can tell you that from what I've seen so far, this current part board seems you know very focused on on costs, right, and making sure that you're getting bang for your buck. So. I guess I'm, I'm, you know, even if it does come in at the in the range that it is, I think it is money well spent. Um, when you actually step back and take a look at lost revenues that the park board has faced, and then looking out over the next how many years, how much revenues could be lost. So, you know, I, I I'm confident that the the commissioners working with their senior management team will, you know, if there's if there's money to be saved, if they can shave off money off of the management fees and consultants. Uh, if there's money to be saved, they will will make the effort. And so, yeah, if we're lucky. Maybe it's going to you know, come in. Maybe uh, maybe comes in closer to two hundred thousand, two fifty. But as I said, even at the range that the the numbers that were being quoted, I still think it's 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 worth the cost when when you do think about the the revenues that they stand to recoup over the next several years. Right. And I think that's what a lot of people are looking at, whether it's, like you mentioned, traffic revenues or what's going to be happening with that. Uh, one of the, the line items, though, in the, the breakdown, so project management, traffic control and traffic management is coming in and the cost associated with that is $55,000. Would there not? So when we, we're talking project management, is it because they're contracting out or would there not be people who are already working at the park board who would be doing some of these things? So would their salaries not already, wouldn't they already be working for those salaries anyway? You know, it's a really good question. I'm glad you asked that because I think you'll find that yeah, you, you, there's so many projects around the city, right? I mean, whether it's sort of the engineering department or within the park board um, organization itself, that you actually don't have enough capacity with your staff to do all the projects that are happening at any given time. So you often will be contracting out. So when it comes to park design, you know, during my time on the park board, um, we you know worked on several parks and renewals of parks, and that's something that has you know continues to go on. But the park board staff are not the ones that are doing the the landscape architect designs. So they will put out bids for 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 companies to to be the project managers. And so I wouldn't be surprised. And again, without having detailed reports, that that's what we're seeing in this case is that the park board is going to put out. To tender, yep, we're looking for for companies that can can stand, you know, can manage these projects, and uh, and you know, I'm confident. I mean, I know the the you know senior management team at the park board, and I'm confident that they will again strive to to get value for money. But um, I think that's probably what's what's happening here is there's not a capacity or enough capacity within uh, city staff, and so they are having to bring in outside consultants or firms to manage projects. And would that be the same then with the other line items that are the, the most expensive are, are concrete barriers to be removed, which the estimate is $59,208. Uh, other things, cones to be removed, $10,000. Signage to be removed, $25,000. Is that also because those would be contracted out? It's not park board crews that would be doing that? 
again, you're asking all the right questions, and I, I'm, I'm confident that the Park Board Commissioners, um, the current uh, commissioners, are asking these same questions. And again, for you know, for the public, you know, for the media, I mean, we we don't have access to those detailed conversations. Um, you know, it wouldn't be, you know, I would hope that in due course we can maybe get answers um, from the park board on that in terms of, because I think people can understand that. If it's a question of they have no choice but to contract out for the crews that are going to come in uh, to do the repaving, the painting, uh, for the, the management of this project, if that's work that has to be contracted out, people can understand it. I think it's the fact that we don't know, the fact that you and I are, are having this and asking these questions that's the part that sort of I think, uh, rubs people the wrong way. Right. And also seeing that, and I get that the, the park board is different than city council and it's, and it's a different entity, but people see city crews all the time, putting up barricades or taking barricades down and, and doing these things within the city. And I think that's where the question comes from. Well, if we have people employed within the city that do this, then, then why are we paying so much more? And, and you're right. And I'm not suggesting that, that anything here, they're trying to pull a fast one or, or that these numbers aren't legitimate, but I think people People do because it is taxpayer dollars for for some parts of it that people do have a lot of questions about exactly how they're being spent. You, you know, um, as, as being a former park commissioner, I, I can tell you, and I know again, these commissioners have taken it to heart. You you can never go wrong with being transparent to the public on terms of how tax dollars are being spent. And so, I think really, if they could just give more information to clarify that. That would be fine. And, you know, when I was on the park board, we were actually looking for ways of saving money. And so once upon a time, the park board had their own garbage removal department. And we streamlined that to be part of the city's garbage removal. And so, you know, where there were opportunities to get rid of duplication, I know that we did that work on our time and that's work that has continued. And so you don't, uh, from what I recall, I mean, there isn't a, a crew, a paving crew that works solely for the park board. They've got to reach out to the city engineering department and try to coordinate. And, and again, all you have to do is drive around the city of Vancouver, if you can, and see of all of the road work that's done, whether it's, you know, sewage lines, repaving. And so it could be just a capacity issue and that they have no choice but to contract out. So, you know, if people say, well, they have crews, you know, it probably would cost a lot more if that work was all being done in-house. And again, we're speculating. Uh, you and I don't know whether or not this is in-house or if it is being contracted out. But my guess is that at least a percentage of what we're seeing there, the estimates, is because the work is being contracted out to, to outside firms. All right. And, and, you're, and you're right. Certainly, um, it's, it's refreshing to hear that maybe where there were redundancies or like you said, if it was a repetitive, the park board had this, this crew as well, but there's also a city crew. Uh, it is nice to hear that those things are being looked at and, and cost efficiencies are hopefully still being looked at as well. Absolutely. You know, and again, just, I guess just a point I made in earlier in the, in the interview is, is it's let's, let's focus less on this expense, but let's look at the potential of, of, of accessing revenues. You know, from, from what I, from, you know, talking with some of the, the businesses in the parks and some of my contacts, you know, they're, they're losing um, easily, uh, you know, two, up to upwards of $2 million in parking revenue alone, right? And you know what, what many people don't realize is the park board, almost half of the park board's budget comes from things like the parking fees or golf fees. And so a lot of the great services that the park board provides results from the, the money that's being spent for parking and, you know, a percentage of the restaurant, you know, uh, uh, revenues that are coming from Stanley Park come into, into the revenues for the park board. And so I think, you know, striking the balance is exactly what's happened here. You know, they're, they, they're going to make improvements. They're going to look at how... Cyclists can go through there in a safe way. 
but allowing access for those with disabilities, allowing those tour buses to come back during the cruise ship season. I mean, that, that's massive amounts of revenue that the park board then can then, you know, plow back into all the great services that they provide. So I think that's, that's really the bigger picture here is if it, even if it is three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars $400,000, if we look out the next four, five, ten years and all the revenues that we're going to be able to recruit as a city, I think it's money well spent. All right. Aaron, thanks again so much for joining us and for bringing that perspective of, of being on the park board in the past to this. Uh, appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. You just heard about this on the news. A word of caution from the Richmond RCMP about migratory birds that are on some local roadways. Well, joining us to talk more about what has been happening on the streets, there is Corporal Ian Henderson, Media Relations Officer with the Richmond RCMP. Corporal, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, good afternoon, Jill, and thank you for your interest in this. Well, it's not often we hear about this many birds and uh, with uh, the, the reports of at least 20 uh, dead snowbirds on one of the roads in Richmond. So tell us a little bit more about how this was discovered and what's happening. Well, over the past few days, we've had two specific incidents uh, where a number of birds have been uh, apparently run over by vehicles. Um, you know, this time of year, we typically see a large number of migratory birds. In this case, these are uh, snow geese uh, coming through Richmond. Uh, they're typically found in our green spaces like parks and school grounds and things like that. Um, but they are wandering out on the roadways. Uh, and because of these last couple incidents, we decided to put out a, a, just a warning to, uh, to drivers to just pay attention in the early morning hours, slow down, and just prepare for the unexpected. Because these things, uh, even though they're in big numbers, sometimes they're hard to see in the early morning hours. So in the case of the 20 dead snowbirds that were discovered, and I think it was on Blundell Road, is this a case, do you think, was it one vehicle that drove over these birds or multiple vehicles were hitting these birds? Well, at this point, our investigators are still looking at that. Um, because of the large numbers, we, uh, we decided that we should be reaching out to the SPCA to see if there was any uh, criminal investigation that we should be looking at at this uh, incident. Um, however, at this time, there's no real evidence to suggest that there was any intent, and uh, it's difficult to determine if it was one or many vehicles. Uh, in this one as well. So we're still looking at that. Uh, but given that the, the high volume of geese in the area, um, you know, it, chances are it wasn't intentional and we really hope it wasn't. Right. It would be kind of sad and, and uh, icky to say the least to think that somebody was out there driving and, and purposely running over these birds. Well, yeah, and, and really, quite frankly, it is criminal. Um, you know, the cruelty laws would apply. Um, you know, there are sections under the criminal code that would apply to that. But there's also uh, things under the uh, Migratory Bird Act that may apply, Motor Vehicle Act, and things like that. So if it were an intentional uh, act going on, we would definitely be following up with that. And and so just to, to clarify again, and, and you touched on this, but so there's two incidents that that you've been alerted to, one on February 13th in the morning, and that one was on Blundell, and then on February, or just this morning, I guess, at 5.40 this morning, that one was on Number 1 Road and, and Francis? 
Yes, and in this case, uh, we received a report of a huge flock on the road. So when our uh, officers got there, our frontline officers got there, uh, they found that uh, there had been three that had been struck by a vehicle uh, or multiple vehicles where it's not clear at this time. Um, so it's it's just a matter of these birds being out there and there's not much we can do in terms of, you know, penning them off of the roadways. So drivers just need to slow down and be aware that they are out there, especially in the morning hours. Does it seem odd? I know that this time of year we often see big flocks of these birds, but we usually see them in farmers' fields or places where they can eat and have a food source, don't we? Is it strange to see so many of them on the roads? Well, I'm not really a bird specialist, but uh, I, I can say that uh, I have seen them on the roads. Um, uh, the huge numbers we're seeing, uh, I mean, that might be something to speak to a bird specialist about. But, uh, yeah, they're out there for sure. All right. We, we may have to do that next. Um, I, I know you've been liaising with the BCSBCA, and like you said, this is a criminal thing if, if somebody has been doing this on purpose for whatever reason. Uh, so are you working then or continuing to work with the BCSBCA? BCA about this? Well, um, our investigators are reaching out to them. Uh, I don't have an update at this time uh, because it's still under investigation, the first one. Um, however, the second one, uh, we don't feel the need to pursue uh, that type of investigation, given the, given the circumstances. They're a bit different. And so what's different about them then that the first one is something that's still being pursued? Well, I think the sheer numbers of the first one, uh, given that there were at least 20 of these birds uh, hit uh, in the first instance, we really wanted to make sure that it was accidental and not someone doing this intentionally. Um, given the, the second one, it, it looks, the one that happened this morning, it looks more like it was an accident, given the location, the lighting situation and things like that. Uh, if someone does hit these birds, uh, as they'll probably be on the roadways uh, for, for at least the, the near future, if somebody does accidentally hit these birds, should they stop? Should they alert the SBCA or do you have any advice for what somebody should do if they do find themselves in that situation? Well, yeah, the best thing to do is to stop uh, and, and to just make sure, you know, if it's a wounded bird, uh, that they get some care of some sort. So uh, people can reach out to us uh, through our non-emergency number or they can uh, reach out to the SPCA uh, and we'll set them up with the appropriate uh, contacts to, to get some attention to the animal itself. Um, you know, these things can also do a lot of damage to your vehicle as well, and people don't think of that as well. So, uh, you know, it's just it's just a reminder to just be careful, especially this time of year when we have so many of these birds out and about in Richmond uh, and area, actually, uh, that, you know, just slow down, be careful. And you know what? Uh, we also encourage people not to get out to chase these things because they can be uh, territorial as well. Right. So if somebody does, though, um, if you come up to a part of the road where all of these geese are in front of you, is it best to turn around, find another route? Or what do you what do you do in that scenario? <laughs> yeah, they, they kind of have a mind of their own. So, I, you know, people have been reporting while well, I honked at them and they didn't do anything. Well, that's, that's I think that's kind of typical for wild animals and <laughs> of that nature. But, uh, yeah, your best thing is to just turn around and find another way, you know, and plan ahead. Slow down, plan ahead, give yourself extra time on your way to work, and uh, things will work out. Uh, and you mentioned damage as well, and I think that, that might come as a surprise when you're thinking of a bird. It's one thing, I think, if we're thinking about a deer on the road or something bigger. Uh, but, uh, but like you said, so these can also damage your vehicle? 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, bird strikes to vehicles are, are uh, can be very damaging, especially the size of these birds. Uh, they're not quite as big as a Canada goose, but they can still pack a good punch, I think. And uh, Corporal, just one other point about the area then where they're, where they're seen, because they tend to, again, be close to those places like fields and farmer or farmers fields or parks. Uh, so with these two uh, cases, so one, uh, the 6200 block of Blundell, the other one at to one road in Francis, are, is it confined kind of to those areas or is it a, a bigger area in Richmond that drivers should be concerned about? Actually, it's all over Richmond. Uh, any they they seem to be attracted to the green spaces and parkways and and school grounds. So anywhere you have those kinds of big open areas, you're bound to find these uh, these flocks wandering out into the roadways. So it, it's important to just pay attention, uh, especially in the in the low light situations in the early morning, because even though they're white, they're difficult to see first thing in the morning. Uh, and and just if you're approaching, you know, a school that's in the area you know that the geese hang out there slow down they may be out on the road all right it's very good advice and something for people to watch out for uh, for sure corporal thanks so much for joining us and bringing us up to date oh thank you very much jill i appreciate it